today we're joined by Gareth Kelly uh, from Rewire NPT, which if I'm not mistaken is Neuro Performance Therapy. Um, he's based out in Lisburn and uh, I again, have not met you before, so it's a pleasure to meet you here. I'm excited to kind of get uh, some of your story because it looks from what I've seen on your website like a pretty interesting one. Um, you kind of started off in your like movement journey being like an acrobatist or, a, or a, like a circus yeah. performer, right? Yeah, well, even before this, so as a kid, I was, I didn't have very many friends. So I kind of just jumped around the place a lot at home. Um, so I was always like, as a kid, just couldn't sit still. And then I started lifting weights and stuff, you know, at school as you would do. But then I got sucked into the circus, the circus world. Um, I went down one day to a trapeze class and was lifting people on the trapeze. And I was like, oh, I'm good at that. I can throw people around. I'm, I'm, I'm okay at this. I'm either going to be a bouncer or an acrobat. So <laughs> that's how it started. Yeah, straight into the circus from there. Crazy. And you got to like a kind of high level with that? Like you were touring and stuff? Oh, yeah. So I went through normal it's just sort of community circus type thing and training with people the old time and then i ended up applying for a degree course over in london for at a place called circus space it's now called the national center for circus arts um and that's kind of like a feeder school for like a lot of circus soleil and the seven fingers and all those kind of big touring things but i went off on tour around america and then i came back and during training one day, that's that's when actually I had my big bad accident. One of my big bad accidents. I had a few during circus school time as well. What happened in your accident? What took place? So, uh, which one? the ones in circus school or the one out the big big one? The big one, yeah, either or. Uh, so well, in circus school, I I had a small fracture in C four that nipped the edge of my spinal cord, so I lost the power in my left arm um, once over Christmas. But I thought I just creeped my neck, so we still went to the pub and guys were doing handstands on my head for drinks. And I didn't know, because I was drunk. But uh, but the big bad one was after I came back on tour, we were practicing a thing called Russian Bar. So it's like a big pole between two bases and they spring somebody up and down and they lose it, use it like a trampoline. And in training one day, we just got it slightly wrong. So the girl landed really close to me. So it was about 500 kilos went down through my spine. And L4, L5 and S1 broke. And I didn't know they broke. I thought I just, I felt something go. And my back just went rigid, the muscles. And I think, I thought I'd slipped the disc, basically. And went home. And went to bed got up the next morning well I didn't get up I woke up the next morning yeah. and did not get up <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a horror story to think that it's so easy for body to I mean you were uh, an elite athlete at the time comparative to like what your activity level is in a normal person's and for you to yeah. not have the perception of your your spinal cord being broken uh, or your spine being broken at your spinal cord yeah it was it was so weird I think I think it was such a severe incident that it almost, you know, it's kind of weird. I think it was so severe that I was in almost instant shock. Yeah. And actually then, so anybody looking would be like, nothing's happened. Always just tweaked his back. 
Yeah. But actually, it was so severe, it didn't look severe, if that makes sense. Did it bring to light uh, how sympathetic you'd been prior to, or at least did you come to terms to that, like that, that threshold of uh, your activity level had been so demanding that the injury level kind of conveyed the same degree of you know, perception or perceivable internal state? Yeah, I think so. I think I was so focused. I was so focused on what we were doing because with Russian bar, there was no safety lines or mats underneath it. So if the person hits the ground, usually if the flyer hits the ground, they're dead. Um, so we had to, we usually would have to make sure no matter what what's going wrong to get underneath the person. So I think I had such a high level of focus and I was running on such adrenaline anytime doing it. Hmm. I wasn't able to feel when the structure was getting tired when the midline was starting to leak. Yeah. You know, because I was focused on this other person. And that was just just pushing it too hard, I think. Gotta say the casual drop of midline is a nice refresher. Because <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, I'm sure you experience this when you're talking to, I guess, the standard run of the mill trainer, but having to explain what that is or talking yeah. about someone who doesn't fully grasp it <laughs> and it being like a what are you saying? What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> but that said, at the time, I'm sure you probably didn't really have a concept of what like midline was or probably the neurology of the system, right? You hadn't really gotten no. into that like information yet. Yeah, I didn't have a notion. I had, I had no, I knew what sort of bringing neurology into physical training was because I was friends with the guy that had a company called AMN, Applied Movement Neurology. And those guys had just started out and I was um, in line to be sort of like their initial videos. I was going to be the movement model for it. Um, so like I knew them because they knew my wife really well. Uh, but I had no idea about anything about it. I just knew it was a thing that was they were starting to do. But I was always quite, even when I was young, I was really quite interceptive. You know, I was very internally turned. So I had really good spatial awareness and I could feel, you know, like I could tell if, where my joints were in space. I could tell how everything felt. You know, it was always a lot more sensitive that way than a lot of people. Like, what do you mean you can't feel where your bowels are? What are you, what are you talking about? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. But I had, I had no idea about the whole, the reasons for it and what it was or anything like that. Do you think that uh, your perceivability or your ability to interocept, I, I, I just generally think that this is where it comes from, but you're welcome to tell me what your, your opinion is, uh, that hyperactive uh, uh, presentation that you had as a kid where you were running around and you weren't really like settled, um, I assume you felt more often than a normal kid just in that respect, like because you're moving around more. Um, do you feel like the aspect of uh, familiarity to injury is what gives you the tolerance to become stronger around it? Do you feel like you learned how to become injury proof by way of becoming injury tolerant? Yeah. I, if you've never experienced something, you won't know how to interact with it. Yeah. So if you've never had a serious injury, um, you you're going to probably, you know, you're probably not going to react well when you're put in a dangerous situation because you don't know, you know, it's all good and well talking about building safety in strange ranges and safety in strange places so that you're, 
you know, your brain and your nervous system feel safe so that it doesn't freak out. Yeah. But if it hasn't experienced what can go wrong, how can you how can you manage it? Yeah. You know? So definitely I think that helped a lot. And also because I had asthma when I was really, really young. Mm. And every time I ran, my lungs would go on fire. You know, and I would have to then I actually put this down to I think it's my first experience trying to control my breath. Mm. Was trying to not have an asthma attack on a school run. Yeah, out yeah. in the middle of a field somewhere going, if I have an asthma attack, there's nobody here to help me. So, you know, that kind of, all that, you know, just weird random stuff that happens as a child. Yeah. All that, I think, you know, it's the first sort of introduction. So I think I've always been kind of leaning towards there has this to be kind some, of thing. It seems like there's that connection because if you're like, uh, you recognize there's no one there to help you, you must have been in a situation where you hurt yourself and you're like, I can't do anything about this. And that like... I, I say that because there's some uh, survivability mechanism where if you get hurt and your first reaction is not to panic, there's like a longer framework where you can recognize maybe I'm not in as much pain as, as I thought I was or whatever. Something might subside in the, the immediate reception of the experience. But I've yeah. noticed that in trying to teach people how to interoceptive better, not to proprioceptive, but to do it without the... Um, without the uh, afferent return, I suppose, without the like the encouragement of stimulus and the inputs, uh, most people get overwhelmed. Like they can't listen to the input data or there's like a conflict of interest. Like something it's saying is not comfortable or whatever. Yeah. Well, people, you think on it. Well, and this is just, this would be my sort of thoughts on it. People aren't built for the way we live today, really. Hmm. You know, we're not built to be in contact with as many people in cities that we're in contact with or even walking past again. There's so much input. You know, a, like a bucket can only hold so much water. When that overflows, not even like your injury bucket, you know, but like literally just a bucket. Yeah. You could throw 10 tons of water at that bucket, but it'll only hold five litres. Yeah. And I think that's the same with the input for a lot of people. So whenever they actually try and sit and pay attention to how their system's managing their input. Their system is not managing it at all. <laughs> so that's why they don't like it. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. At the same time, people have a hard time like de-stimulating themselves. Like if their bucket starts to get like half empty, they kind of get a little like skittish or like all of a sudden they're they're kind of seeking some more input, usually not in their body, but from some sort of external thing. They have to put on some music, they have to put on a podcast. Um, is that something that you kind of work with with clients in, in terms of like one, getting them obviously to intercept and find more of like the, the ability to empty the bucket, but fill up their sensation, I guess, more. And does that require like a, a turning off of some of the external? Oh, definitely. Like initially I will, I'll try not to have any music or anything like that. Or I'll ask them if they go to the gym, did not have headphones in even if there's music on the thing, but having headphones and the sound coming in, stimulating the little the hairs and everything, it's different from headphones because you're knocking out all of this ambient sound around you as well. Mm. And even that sometimes for people, people find that super uncomfortable. Just not going to the gym with headphones in. Uh. And not just because they're going to get chatted to by some gym rat, yeah. but like, you know, but just in general, it just makes them feel... Ugh. 
It's under, it's interesting that so many people don't understand that because you see people that are showing degrees of discomfort, whether it be like some variation of anxiety or like some perceivable communication in their own head. Uh, but most people are working with a lack of coherence in their sensory inputs and they're yeah. not coming to terms with it. They're not like making attention to it. So it turns out that it's like an emotional disorder or it's a mental disorder. It's never something that coincides with an undertrained or an underprepared nervous system. It's always a disability and people fixate with it. They like, they moniker, this is their title and then they're stuck in that. Oh, 100%. I always think, so pain and focus, I always tell everybody it's the exact same thing. Hmm. It's just focuses before something has gone wrong. Pain is after something's gone wrong. Both of them are there to protect you. So pain is like, oh, something's wrong with this limb. Pay attention to it. Focus is it like, you know, you're walking along this branch. You better not fall or something bad will happen to this limb. Yeah. So, you know, two sides, of different sides of the same coin. But people will use that. Like People will use focus to not focus on the inputs. Because, yeah. again, it's a way of protecting them from having to face totally. that something isn't working. So they'll use focus for totally the wrong thing. you know. But they won't even know they're doing it. They will focus on something else. How weird is that? They're living in their head. They're consuming more fuel as a byproduct of their like rushed pace of thinking. And they have no perception that they're draining the supply that they're trying to attribute to something. Like It's, it's like driving out of uh, the gas station, but you've like punctured a hole in your gas tank and yeah. you're doing your best to just see what happens. Yeah. Oh, there's some people have many holes in their gas tank. Yeah, dude. I was living with like, I didn't even, I was just like, I had to be connected to the tank or I'd just be walking around. Like <laughs> I had no idea how worked up I was all the time. Like living in a space of like, you know, my insides aren't turbulent enough. Let's put something else in here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Let's drive with a flat. Be fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if everything else in your environment's wrong, then it makes things that are in, wrong inside a little more comfortable. It's like a, yeah. a pro proof of concept or proof of uh, privilege or whatever. Definitely. That, and that one breeds the other. Yeah. Definitely. So you would have had literal like holes in your bones and your spine coming off of that um, bad uh, spine break. How was the rehab? Um, did you kind of have a more well, standard traditional approach? <clears throat> well, oddly enough, so back in the day, I used to be really hench. <laughs> um, and so I didn't know that I broke anything for a year. Yeah, let's just uh, walk this. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so, so I thought I just slipped the disc. So I was in bed the first day. The next day, I just got up. Yeah. Um, the wife, who was the girlfriend at the time, uh, put my socks on. And so I did loads of stretching and things like that. But I, I do remember at one point, and I still trained. I still did like gymnastic rings. Dude. Um, but then I would suffer for about three days afterwards, and I'll have to do loads of flossing and like mm. things like that that my physio uh, showed me before and when I was at circus school and stuff just to function and I would lie on a ball for about an hour a day trying to massage out my back 
Um, little did I know that was what was keeping me together was my two big, massive, massive back muscles, my big, two big QLs. And then I sneezed one day on the tube oh. and just fell over. <laughs> and I was like, basically, I was like, fuck this shit. I can't be. What is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. then I went and I saw, I did, I saw my, not my wife's friend, Luke from AMN, and he did some cranial nerve testing. And then at one point, all the strength just drained from me. And he goes, you should probably go get an MRI of your spine. And I went, okay, why not? Off I went. And they went, there's three heel breaks here. Oof. You know, and not only that, they were, they were going, and more than likely, there's a hell of a lot of scar tissue around your nerves and everything. That's why you're in so much pain. I was like, oh, that makes sense. You know? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So then I went and trained with Luke for a bit, and that was it. That was, that was my door into neurology. Mm. It's a pretty good door that you had to be dragged through. <laughs> I know. I was like, I guess fine. I've just slipped the desk. It's okay. Yeah. It's such a casual, casual response to something that's so severe. <laughs> even, even I put it down to not known. If I knew, I would not be as casual. Dude, yeah, that's fair. But I think that was probably a little bit intentional. Like, uh, let's see if I can push through it. It'd be better if I yeah. could prove to myself I can push through it. Oh, yeah, totally. Because um, one of the things I did before at circus school was on my left arm, I tore everything except I tore all four rotator cuffs, all of the delts, the supraspinatus, and it was kind of just basically a few tendons and skin holding the arm in from flying trapeze. And I didn't. <clears throat> Went and got a cortisone injection and then had it strapped up and rehabbed up. And kind of just left it. Uh, has it had damage since the cortisol injection? Did you find that that was like a, a bad route for you? I found, I think it made the healing process longer. Okay. Because it got rid of the pain. Yeah. For about two months. But the pain's there for a reason. Right. So I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing. Yeah. I feel like you know, one of the best educators, sorry to interrupt. I feel like that's oh, one yeah. of the best ways to just... If you're in pain and you negate the sensation or the uh, like the interest in the sensation, it's a really good way to like not prioritize how your body's going to perceive motion in the next little bit. But if you walk with mind of pain, not necessarily yeah. not necessarily limping, but creating a like a a contingency to get yourself out of pain through motion, like you're moving yeah. so as to like dissipate it. I, I've noticed. I don't know what it was. I was in pain a couple of days ago, and I just was paying attention to the fact that. I regularly allow myself the pain that I'm in. I don't ignore it. I don't like take a step into the other room and just hope that the pain goes away. Like I, I step in the room with it and I fight that shit. <laughs> yeah. Because see, when you pay attention to it and you focus on it. Yeah. Because again, I, I always, you know, pain and focus are two sides of the same coin. Right. If you're focusing on that pain and being mindful of it and the way it moves and what generates, the pain's going to get less. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, definitely. But I think that because it totally got rid of the pain for about two months, yeah, it slowed down my rehab a lot longer because I was obviously then pushing it a little bit too much or trying to move it. Because initially I couldn't move it because there was nothing that was connected to move it really. But, um, yeah, and MCLs have went, have broke both wrists. 
I did, I'd broke both wrists, boxing, on a spinning boxing punch bag, and then the chin-ups on them. I'm just a bit stupid. <laughs> like, fucking... Yeah, you must have lived in severe degrees of pain or like a neural dysfunction for per- periods of time for you to like have that tolerance or that, that threshold. Yeah, I, I do think it has, I think I was living off adrenaline so much that the, the pain tolerance has, it's still sort of, because when I get tattoos and stuff now, they're very, they don't bother me generally wherever they are. But that's because the pain tolerance has built up from unconsciously sort of pushing through it. So that now it's all, you know, you're like, you've built up the resistance to it now. Totally. But because of all the training I've done, that's kind of good. Yeah. No, but if I was still living the way I was living, I would be ruined. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that there is that difference, though, because you're using... So when I when I go around and I'm around the 80% of people I should not have contact with, that, like, surplus of people that we're never going to interact with, and they're just, like, because there's so many people in one fitted area, we end up in the same store or whatever. Uh most of them are chickens with their head cut off, like not having experienced that tolerance of, <clears throat> for example, laying in the street, semi-conscious, like I just fuck myself up. <laughs> I need some help. And then either awaiting it out or someone conveniently coming out and being like, you need some help. That's yeah. That most people need an experience of, otherwise they're going to be like stuck in a perpetual loop of why is everyone so stressed and like worrisome around me? there's no justification for me to be like that. Presumably majority of the people that are like that for cause, it's like they've been injured, they've been traumatized, whatever. But then there's this whole flurry of people who have not had that experience who like to put themselves in other people's shoes. And they're saying, and they're like, uh, wow, this person's anxious. I might be anxious too, or whatever. Like there's like a total connectivity of shared experience without there being a shared experience. So people can be victims without, whatever and then majority of people who have endured something are likely uh, not the types of people who are oh, look at how hard this is look at how hard this is so it just brings a show like uh, I've uh, like I was uh, uh, walking across the street it was summertime the asphalt was super hot my brother was in front of me and he had like he was like uh, delicately hopping across the road it was too hot for him and I had no idea what was going on. I think I was in front of him, walking slower than him. And he, uh, like, like jogged past me. It's like, what's going on? He's like, it's too hot. And I had no sensation for the heat aside from it. It just felt nice. And the difference in, like, uh, maybe I was barefoot more often. Maybe I have less uh, input at some fixed point down there, whatever, whatever. But uh, I noticed that it's much more comfortable to be able to have that threshold than to totally avoid it. To like have no wherewithal and no comfort with it. Yeah, and you like, you don't have that threshold unless you've had that experience. Yeah, there, there's a lot of different versions of that threshold too. There's like the heat, cold. Um, there's a pressure threshold. There's like uh, amount of weight lifted, and then there's also, I guess, the amount of stretch or like a flexibility threshold. And that's something that yeah. you kind of specialize in, and uh, seems like it's a big focus of your training. Um, was that obviously you would have been kind of pushed towards that with your like circus career. Um, was that something that you inherently were pretty good at or like you inherently were flexible? No, I was a brick. Yeah. Uh, I got, 
I got flexible at circus school, but the old school way of doing it. So having someone push you and do, you know, yeah. like Chinese circus school style. And then, but after my injury, it all disappeared. Mm. Totally disappeared. Everything, even my shoulder flexion, wow. totally changed. Like, everything. Couldn't even properly left and right. That's how tight I got. So then I decided, I was like, right, screw it. Once I finally sorted the back out, I was like, right, screw this. I'm going to get this back. And I was starting using neurology-based tools for it. So like a lot of eyesight positioning, a lot of breath drills, that kind of thing. But also there's a key thing that people, especially people that go to yoga or martial arts or any adult that wants to get flexible doesn't do, and that's get strong enough to be flexible. So like reciprocal inhibition. So if one muscle fires, the opposite muscle has to relax. Yeah. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to move your limb. People are too weak to be flexible. Yeah. So they'll passively stretch by trying to turn everything off, yeah. which is great when you're already flexible for maintaining the flexibility, just sitting in that range. Yeah. But after a while as an adult, your brain goes, fuck that shit, that's dangerous. And it will stop you going any further. No matter how long you sit in a stretch. But if you're strong enough to get out of the position you can get into, your brain just goes, ah, that's okay. You've got this. This hurts a bit, but it's manageable. And that's so I manage, and that's how I generally teach flexibility now is get strong. Yeah. That's so awesome. That's a longevity threshold for it. I've always noticed that. Like the one way I've noticed that uh, you can't do a a split if you can't pull yourself out of it without like waddling like that yeah. the, the full spectrum of the split is the ability to pull yourself out of it because that's what you're training you're training your adductors to really stretch into it but fundamentally they should be able to pick you up and yeah. i just realized to myself like none of this shit is being done properly like none of the stuff like uh, uh, a muscle up has value like you're pulling yourself over something that doesn't have like a coherent ledge for you to like navigate around um, but I look at like flexible or I look at, uh, ATG before it had become like as heavily knees over toes guy. And they've done a lot of passive stretching. <clears throat> they've done a lot of, yes. um, active stretching, which I find <laughs> more valuable the stuff that they have loaded, but the yeah. stuff that I don't love, which I find, uh, I, I have my theory about it, but, uh, he'll do like a, a dunk and then he'll go into a squat or split. He doesn't put on a, a bunch of muscle mass. This is the thing that bothered me, that uh, he didn't have a ton of muscle mass, but he was pretty flexible. But I realized that he's doing so much force uh, impact exercise that he's putting through his leg the same amount of force that where he's sprinting or something like that. So there is that degree of intake that he would have if he were doing something that would be strength building. So in the respect of like, <clears throat> if you can cheat your inhibition or if you can eat, cheat your inhibitory process to where you feel like you're properly or adequately loading the opposite side or the reciprocal side of what you're about to do, uh, you can probably get your, you can probably get away with a little bit of increased range of motion, whatever. Um, what is your thought on the quality of, or the emphasis of stretching in those, in those environments? I like range of strength because he's, like I said, it's not range of motion, it's range of strength. He's abiding yeah. in a strength protocol, but like a uh, knees or toes guide, uh, the flexible, they've gone back and forth. They've like done their thing. Uh, and 
it's either contingent on them doing a lot of squats, so building strength or doing a lot of dunks, but it's never like the type of stretching, like you say, the old Chinese stuff where you're having a little kid be stretched by four different people. Yeah. So uh, I think also all of them have really good points. I, like the Flexi Bull has good points, Reg of Strength. I, I, Reg of Strength and Emmett Lewis, uh, they would be the two that I would say, like, they would be the closest to the way I would look at things anyway. Yeah. Um, I did a couple of things for Lucas at Reg of Strength on nerves and stuff. Oh, really? But, um, like, ATG stuff, uh, like the Flex Bull, the, the, the feud... <laughs> that kind of thing is just it's all talk and semantics yeah. everyone's trying to be specific but yet not really specific yeah. so both of them are useful and in fact both of them should be done it just depends it should be done to your personal tolerance right if that makes sense because there's something that ATG and uh, Keegan and all get and I I actually think they get this quite bang on um, is the long range and short range stuff there's neurally, I think, the long-range and short-range idea, if you ever... I think he's got a couple of YouTube videos on it. It's probably worth a watch. It's actually quite good because the way I look at it is structure, so intensity versus activation. So whenever you get into something that ATG, for example, calls long-range, so like the back lever or something, you know, yeah. so it's really, really long-range, it's more tendon-heavy, you actually rely more on the intensity to control it. Right. So what you're relying on is more reflexive action. Yeah. So you're building up the tolerance to that intensity and the, the, there's more reflexive strength. So it strengthens your tendons and stuff. More like, more um, activation. So intentional contraction. Like right. So they call it the short range stuff. It's more muscular based. It's more stuff you can affect. So like holding that position to get a cramp, for example. Yeah. Like doing that. That's, so one is really reflexive and one is conscious. And you do need the both, which yeah. I think is really bang on. But there's a lot of things in what well, everybody does stuff that I would go a bit like, oh. um, but I would say Reg of Strength and Emma Lewis would be the two that I would say are closest to having it right. Because Lucas, that's if you're not strong, you can't stretch. Yeah. Yeah, that's you have just, nothing. That's just it. That's the biggest thing. Nerve glides become stretches if you have no muscle mass. Like yes, that's the thing. Exactly. Seen, you see people like using nerve glides as like a, this is a reference to get your sensation, whatever. I have they have me doing it. <clears throat> it's a uh, course I won't make mention of right now, but I, I tried out their <laughs> stuff. Had a panic attack right afterwards. It was awful <laughs> but what they had me do is like they're trying to show me a nerve glide and i had a, enough experience with it where it's like they can be threatening if they're done the wrong way but they can also be a little dangerous if they were done too forcefully whatever the way it was done was where it was like just endure and i didn't want to do that so yeah i, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know and uh <laughs> i have enough muscle to get like weird ranges of motion where they couldn't yeah. and they were still making me do it so it was the immediacy of how my body had reacted to, uh, like I I done it. I went for like 25 minutes and I was like, I can't do this. Um, I was like sweating. And uh, afterwards I had a legitimate, like uh, it'd been years since my last panic attack, but I had been like washed with heat. 
I've been anxious, like that feeling of like not comfortable in my own body that I hadn't had in a while. It's wild how it came back immediately when my nerves felt threatened. Yeah. What do you think, Donna? Your nerves are realistically how your brain affects the world. Yeah. Because muscles are dumb. It's the <laughs> nerves in the brain that moves the muscles. They tell them when they turn on and what tone they have and everything. Yeah. So as soon as you, that's like literally, that is getting you to endure that is like opening your skull and just poking your brain for 25 minutes going, do you like that? Dude. You know, that's, that's crazy. It really is. Well, but that's it. That's the kind of, see, that's like the, the more sort of intensity based, structure based things like back levers or that human, the natural leg extension or the zombie squats and all that kind of thing. You need to have that kind of tolerance to a degree so that reflexively you don't panic. Yeah. And the same with the activation on the other side. But some people, as soon as they get a cramp, they're like, ah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's the same thing. Do you think that ability to, um, so like the, the split, like a difference between doing a, a split where gravity is interacting with you and a split where you're interacting with the uh, eclipse of gravity or like the, the press of gravity. Do you think that it's a byproduct of learning how to create dynamic co-contractions? So what I've understood is co-contractions are a, a, a safety mechanism or a mechanical uh, beneficiary of keeping the joint or the limb more safe. Uh, and we'll do that because we want to restrict range of motion or we want to increase output or whatever. Um, but when I see people doing this kind of stuff, when they're allowing themselves to stretch, but they're also resisting it, it's almost a twofold. It's almost like they're consciously reciprocally inhibit inhibiting or allowing it to happen where uh, the conductivity of the allowance is like, I'm going to let this happen. And then I'm going to resist for every measure that I can't let this happen. And building out that wherewithal, it seems like it's almost a two, like a two thought at the same time kind of thing where you have to treat yourself to feel so reflexively respond and then to cognizantly adjust if need be. Uh, do you feel like people who are um, capable of doing that, uh, like the stronger split that you can come out of or uh, walking on your hands, whatever it may be, uh, are those people... Uh, they've gone so far into the other end of mechanical or neural control that they can co-contract and also be more dynamic than most everyone else? Or is this something different? I have a great belief in, like, for example, in box split. So I slide down and do the Van Damme splits, right? Yeah. I slide down to just off the floor, totally relaxed and then tense again. So you have control of the muscles, the adductors and the glutes and everything there. A lot of people, when they get into that, because they aren't comfortable there, they can't control it, it just disappears. Mm. And that again, that's that intensity range. When something is intense, you lose control over it. It becomes reflexive. So you'll yeah. go to a point where it goes, no, and it will pull you out or yeah. you'll get injured or something. But you have to then spend time there getting comfortable with it. And the more comfortable you get, the more you're able then to activate it. You're actually consciously able to control it. Because yeah. people that don't spend time in it, they're at the mercy of the reflexes. Yeah. So, do you, that, do you think that's how you train your reflexes in conditioning them to become a little more cognizant of like responses or whatever, maybe not cognizant, but <clears throat> if you put yourself in that position, and you give yourself, say, you put your hand to the ground where you know that your limit is, and you give yourself just enough height to retention again. Do you feel like if you were to uh, 
uh, draw through that whatever space that you couldn't manage before and you're really contracting, you're heavily consciously contracting, you feel like that's the way in which you teach your reflexes to be a little more um, uh, reflexive, less re reactive, like uh, less protective, more responsive. Yeah, because what you know yourself, like the brain has that sliding scale of this is probably safe and oh shit, I'm going to die. Yeah. And it always likes to be sort of air on this side. Yeah. But if you start exposing yourself to stay with splits or whatever to that range and you, it goes, oh shit, I'm going to die the first time. Then it does it the first time and it goes, oh, well, I didn't die. Maybe mm -hmm. I might just get really badly hurt so it'll come to here then. Like, oh shit, I'm going to get really badly hurt. Oh no, that's all right. Yeah. So instead of the reflex is still there, it still kicks in, but it doesn't panic kick in the whole way. It doesn't pump the brakes. It gently presses the brake, yeah. which is totally different. And that that all comes, I think, from as soon as you feel properly safe. And it's not, you know, front of lobe, conscious brain, feel safe. Right. It's right. as soon as your reflex, like as soon as, as soon as the brainstem says, this is okay. Yeah. You know, brainstem, cerebral, all, as soon as that all goes, lads, this is fine. This idiot just likes to do this. So, you know, I, I was thinking just the other night about the brainstem or at least mewing and its interaction. And I think like myotomes, for example, how the skin is one of the most functional organs that we have as a byproduct of its connectivity, just because it branches and touches everything else. <laughs> our palate and our midline is similarly co uh, coordinated where it branches and touches everything else. Uh, in creating the mewing factor, a lot of the throat that we are not presenting <clears throat> is getting caught up in the uh, flexion or sorry. Yeah. It's the flex nature of the backside of our, our skull. So we have a little bit of like um, uh, overloaded cervical vertebrae that are coming closer to our throat versus our throat coming backward. When I get my throat to come backward, I'm creating a presentation uh, of midline support right mm. under the brainstem. And I wonder if in holding that mewing effort, in swallowing, in breastfeeding, in the maintenance of that, is that brainstem conditioning? Is that like, is it, so uh, it is like um, humming or whatever with the same uh, parasympathetic value where you feel warm, you feel uh, sorted or soothed. Uh, so I wonder if it's like, the heating of that one sensory point that gives us that delineation of internal brainstem security. Like you, when you ever else more safe than when you have a breast in your mouth, no matter what age. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is like, as you know, it's kind of obviously the brain of Peter wants got to make it sound like a vampire. Uh, but like, you know, what the brainstem wants, it gets, and then it goes, you know, as you do, like, body top, front to back, and kind of, like, the last bit, really, to get fed is here. Yeah. So it will take its demands first. So it will be taking all the input from there. It all passes through that gate. So yeah. anything you're doing with Mune and creating that stability, that whole kind of, I want to say, foundation for it, Mm -hmm. because that's what that is. If you draw that line and go down from it, that's a foundation for that to sit on comfortably. Right. Right. If you don't support it, you know, it's what's, 
it's not going to feel safe. If you're standing on ice that's cracking, you're not going to feel great. Totally. You know? So I do think that the stronger all of that is, so the more the throat sits the way it's supposed to, the more the cervical spine isn't like under pressure that it shouldn't be under, then it's just going to have a common effect on everything around it because that will be able to move yeah. the way everything, because everyone thinks it doesn't, all of this stuff doesn't move inside, you know? Some people it doesn't. <laughs> no, yeah, good point. Actually, yeah, you're right. Well, I like to think, I just tell people, you're a jar of pickles. Yeah. Shake that jar. That's kind of what's happened. Don't shake your, don't shake people's brains. Though. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, stuff, it moves. You've seen the sutures, like how half the population doesn't have sutures? Yeah. That's wild. That's weird. I'm saying that. <laughs> Bet you I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah. You think about all the expressions that existed in past time, like a numbskull, you'd think that's someone that can run into something and not have it. <laughs> <clears throat> um, Gareth, with say somebody hasn't done much like flexibility training um, for a long time, how should they approach it? Like what are kind of some of the, um, I guess, potential red flags that they want to avoid? Um, one, one that I've thought about is like, okay, if I'm, say I'm trying to get length out of my adductors, should I be only feeling that stretch in like one particular area or should I be feeling it through the entire like inside of my leg? Do I need to prioritize like feeling kind of this whole myofascial line or uh, is kind of tackling maybe the tight link in the chain the, the better way to go? It's kind of it's kind of a grayer. It depends on the person. It depends sort of where they're starting from. But I always like to think a really good so a green flag is basically think of the opposite muscle that you're trying to stretch. Is that working? Is it working hard? Is it tense? Is it pulling you into position? And then the muscle that you're trying to stretch should be working and you should feel ass stretched but it should feel like it's lifting something at the same time, if that makes sense. So it's not actually just, you know, that passive stretch where you just try and, uh, you know, accept the pain. Yoga style is stretching almost. Because yoga people, yoga teachers are usually the most in pain people I've ever met in my life. They're just very good at hiding it because they're so passively stretched that they don't have the strength and stability in their joints anymore. Yeah. So you want to make a good structure. If you don't feel like there's structure, like uh, stability in that joint structure, so you'll know, even if you've never experienced it before, you'll know if something's not right in a joint when you're doing something. Do you yeah. ever turn a certain way and you go, oh, I didn't like that? <laughs> Same thing, if you start stretching and just like, I oh, just breathe. No, that's, come out, reset, go again. Everything should be supported by the structure. And yeah. all of the muscles will help build that support. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that brings to mind the, uh, you see in personalities that can, like are staying in a habit or like a, a function or framework if you stay in doing yoga and that's your framework of exercise very possible that you become uh unsupported or like your personality type starts to dissolve as you have lesser and lesser physical support uh same with anyone that's not just specific like if you're a runner or if you're a triathlete you're probably going to be burning out your even though you do that to remediate your stress it's probably going to exacerbate your stress and make you uh, way more like coffee personality-esque, just like charged up. Yeah. Uh, it's just interesting how that 
plans uh, plays out where someone, if they're doing something so uh, often and they're allowing for their nerves to physically change, then the quality of their, like their output is going to be so different to where it can change their personality. It can change their behavior, can make certain things more or less comfortable. Yeah. Like for example, we go with just yoga and running there. So yoga instructors that I've come across, as I say, they're, a lot of their joints, especially the ones that have hundreds and hundreds of hours of teacher training, and they look super bendy, and you're like, Jesus. Um, no muscle. Usually, yeah. <laughs> but um, their joints are not fucked, but they're so unstable. Yeah. And because of that, their nervous system is constantly worried about what the spaghetti body is going to do. You know, so it's freaking out, and that just turns them into so it almost makes them manic. Yeah, they're so wrecked with anxiety, but they're trying to push through. Like as you say, it's like they're super anxious, and they've had 150 cups of coffee. It's that kind of you know, and that's why then they get deeper and deeper into practicing then yoga because that's their little dopamine hit. Yeah, that makes them feel that everything's okay, and they don't feel like they're going to fall apart. Same with runners, if they run badly. And they yeah. keep pushing through and they train it. Like naturally, we're built to run. Yeah. We only get sore knees and hips and everything if we just run badly. Yeah. Totally. But a lot of people run badly, then they get obsessive about it because again, that's their little dopamine hit so that their nervous system wow. goes, actually, no, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand that at all. I don't know how you can if I'm listening to that much input into my body, it drives me fucking crazy. If I'm running poorly. Mm, no, 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 no. Yeah, it literally it the thuds in my ear. I can't do it. No, like I, I ran a couple of. But like, like, I was never a runner. Yeah, and I ended up doing a half marathon with one practice run. Um, and I went out, and I just I was focusing on how I ran, and at the start I was super super slow. Yeah. But see, by about halfway through, I started pulling away from the two guys I was running with mm. because everything was just like, actually, we're doing all right here. Yeah. This it kind of it dawned on me. I was like, oh, shit, I, maybe I've I chosen the right thing to do, mm. you know? And that's like, you can do, you can run a lot further. You can lift a lot heavier, stretch more without having to train for edges as long as you're doing it the way you need to do it. And it's different for everybody, like, but... Yeah, I think most people need less than uh, what they're probably giving themselves, and they need less variation of that less, just to do, like, yeah. three simple things to get done with it after maybe 45 minutes, and then to build your way into being able to do it better, longer, and harder, but... Yeah. Well, like, I'll do, like, um, like generally, like, muscle-ups or something. I'll do them once every nine or ten months yeah don't lose them mm -hmm. you know it's just because when i do them i really pay attention to what i'm doing and usually it's enough you know and that's the same for everything if you people don't pay attention when they train people don't pay attention to themselves people don't pay attention to other people they interact with people just don't pay attention Totally. God, listen to me. It makes it sound like I'm bitching about everybody on the planet, but they don't. They don't because they've been, they've grown up in a society where they're getting external influence. So they're watching TV shows. They're doing. They're always listening to music. They're always, you know, they don't quite sit with themselves. 
Yeah, it's always experiencing yeah. the stimulus, never experiencing the uh, stimulated. They're not interocepting it. It's just a big difference between the two. I see a lot of yeah. coaches being like, we're improving how they're picking up on what you're having something do something. You're not teaching their brain. You're teaching how to respond to something, interacting with their brain. Um, when you ask James questions like this, you'll get a lot more of a measured response because he's not as much kind of escaped from prison as I am. <laughs> I'm a bit more common than James. James will put stuff with big words. I'm just like, nah, people don't like stuff. <laughs> it's a good balance to have. Um, yeah, last thing is. before uh, we unfortunately got to finish up, and we'll definitely get you back on, and um, I'm sure we, we got plenty we could go on about for hours. But um, for somebody who's, again, like kind of assessing what their body needs and maybe in terms of like a flexibility standpoint, what like how do you kind of determine what positions to prioritize? Um, it all comes down to what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to squat deep, then that's what, that'll dictate what you need to do. If you want to do the splits, that'll dictate what you need to do. You know, that kind of, if you want to run a 5K, that'll dictate what you need to do. The starting point should always be what is the end goal. Yeah. <clears throat> and do you think there's any? Do you think there's any in terms of just like general longevity or in general for say your gait, any particular ranges of motion um, or just like um, uh, relievement of neural tension that people probably should have as like a foundation that will allow them to kind of get everything else that they want or all their more specific goals a little easier. I would say the foundation of everything I would generally say is good peripheral vision, work that work peripheral vision, work near far because that will, that is just key. If you, if those two are really bad, you're going to have a wonky ass gate. Yeah. You know, um, that's never you know, <laughs> for most people if they're not uh, if they're not experienced in any neurology. Like that's no gate yeah. is being like, all right, pay attention to where your head is in space. <laughs> Even that's it. Like David Weck's talking about this, which I'm sure. If yeah. let's see, have you seen the head over foot thing where the head? Yeah, down? yeah. <laughs> that's it. Like, and oh, and another thing I would say: see if you're at the gym. I don't like treadmills. Yeah, but if you're in the gym and you're running on a treadmill, you know the way they're always which you don't know why, because they're always banked against the mirror. So when you run, you can see your tits bounce, you know? But do you know the best thing? Stare at your own eyes. Yeah. Your eyes should not move. Everything else should move around your eyes. Yeah. They should be, they shouldn't bounce. They shouldn't do anything when you're running. They should be locked and still. So mm -hmm. that's the one thing I would do is a lot of people when they're in the gym running on the treadmill or even outside, just picture a point in a distance and stare at it. Because, as I say, they should have moved. Everything else should gimbal around your eyes. Because if if there's force coming up through, if there's ricochet force coming up through, and you won't even notice it, but that is making your picture go... Yeah. It's like a pirate at movie theatre film. You know, it's unwatchable. So it's yeah. unprocessable in here. <clears throat> the one that was recorded while running. <laughs> yes, exactly. Fair Witch Project. <laughs> <laughs>